Once again, it's Monday morning, and we've gone through another weekend, almost through another entire month, which is unbelievable to me. Almost as unbelievable as that tomorrow will be my son's 49th birthday. That, that makes me sound really old. But welcome, everybody, to the show today, and welcome, Stan Emmerich, for joining me. I appreciate you coming on today, Stan. You're quite welcome, Kurt. If, for those who have read what we put in the newsletter about today's show, uh, Stan is the History Committee Chair for the Missouri Society of Professional Surveyors, and uh, one, one who, as we were just saying before we came on, on air stand, one who is still interested in our history, as we all should be, of course. Um, and this, I mean, I know you've worked a ton on this thing. You've done some other things um, historically, too. So maybe you could just give the folks a little bit of background on, on you and your exploits, and then we'll get into the topic. Well, as you said, I, I do have an appreciation for the history, especially in the profession we're in, where that's such a critical component of what we do. Uh, I've taken on the task over the past few years as the History Committee Chair to try to document some of the records that are less available to the rest of the surveying profession. We obviously see a lot of surveys, flats, and notes through the system, but we're trying to pull some of that stuff together and make it more readily available to the public as well as the surveying profession to kind of highlight our significance in the community and the importance of our profession through the time. Uh, last year we had an event at the Gateway Arch called the Survey Party to the Arts where we were celebrating the 250th anniversary of the founding of the city of St. Louis. And again, that was the same sort of thing, trying to introduce the public to our profession and our history. And That was, yeah, that was, uh, that was a cool one. I, I, unfortunately, I didn't get to attend, but uh, I think I don't know if you sent me, somebody sent me pictures um, of, of the whole thing and some pictures from, from up in the arch itself. Uh, the activities down on the ground, and I, that that must have been a really fun event. It was. We we were doing multiple things at the t- same time. We were demonstrating the history of uh, how they probably laid out those first city blocks. We demonstrated uh, some modern equipment, uh, scanning the arch and the grounds using uh, two different types of digital scanners. And then we also used some GPS to lay out a birthday cake. That was a Tradition for the event, there were several cakes scattered around town. We happened to lay out the largest one right there on the arch grounds and made a video of it. So that was. Yeah, that was uh, I was just going to say that was one of the remarkable images looking down on on the cake. Yeah, it was uh, along the lines of uh, 150 feet wide by 200 feet tall, and the good part is a lot of folks were having their pictures taken with the cake after the event, so we kind yeah. of accomplished our goal there. So are you a are you a native of Missouri? Actually, I was born across the river in Illinois. My education was from Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I eventually uh, got into this profession. But I've lived in Missouri for the past thirty years, so I guess I'm adopted son on this side of the river. <laughs> yeah, we 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 tend to uh, to stick with where we live. Of course, I've, I'm a native Virginian and spent almost all of my life in Virginia. So, uh, and as a matter of fact, I was uh, jumping ahead a little bit here. I was looking at the materials you sent me where you mentioned that Brown's service in the Virginia militia, and then you mentioned uh, William Clark, and I'm thinking, well, I guess there's connections back here to pretty much everything that happens other, other than perhaps in the Spanish territories. Yes, well, that's true. A lot of Brown's history and his family originate there in Virginia, and 
sadly, we haven't had a whole lot of success doing the research we would have liked to accomplish. For example, where he was educated. So, yeah, this everything we're doing here tails back to that territory. Yeah, um, I don't know if you want to pursue that any further. We have a Surveyors Historical Society through the for the Virginia Association of Surveyors. I'm not sure if they have any information or not, but um, you probably know uh, David Ingram. Yes. David's very active in the in that historical society, so I don't know if there's any link there or not. But anyway, uh, today we want to talk about these these events that uh, that you guys have put together, and uh, and the reason behind them, and some history about it. And I know the materials you sent me were were really interesting. And of course, like all surveyors, I love maps, so yeah. <laughs> I had a great time a great time going through those. And uh, as a matter of fact, maybe speaking of the maps, before we actually get into the projects, maybe it might be a good time to talk a little bit about the one map you sent me that showed areas where he worked. I mean, as we were talking before we went on air, how many how many different areas and how many states it touched? Yes, uh, that's the amazing thing about him, is he surveys many, many miles of line, all of different types. And it's mostly uh, reflects back on the fact that he was such highly regarded in his competence uh, in the profession, and that led him to being put in charge of most of the important surveys of the lines of the day. Uh, some of those we'll get into here in a bit. The, the irony about it is so many of those lines have been extinguished over time, that this guy probably surveys more lines that are no longer around than, than any other surveyor in our country. But nevertheless, he, he was an important figure in this in the Missouri Territory and the St. Louis area, and so we we feel that he deserves the honors recognition we're trying to bestow. And rightfully so, no no question about that. So these two events are somewhat parallel, I guess, although they're not exactly together. But um, maybe you can talk about what they are, and then we can begin to talk about each one. Right. Well, they, they kind of work in tandem in that uh, the, the surveyor is connected with both of them. The first one obviously starts off that this is the 200th anniversary of the running of the 5th Principal Meridian, uh, which is one of the three meridians set up to survey tracks. This one was in the Louisiana Purchase, west of the Mississippi. It's one of the three tracks set up for the military bounty lands uh, granted to the veterans of the War of 1812 where they're trying to set aside lands to pay off these uh, soldiers for their service. This one in particular was established in a peculiar way that ends up, the initial point ends up in a swamp in Arkansas, uh, and then it progresses north from there over the next century until it hits the northern border of the United States. Uh, the second portion, that we're going to spend a day pretty much talking about the progression of that whole network from its initiation as it evolves through the six different states, Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, and North and South Dakota. And each state has some unique characteristics in the way the lines are laid out. And that in and of itself is going to fill a day's worth of uh, information that I, I think most of our surveyors are going to find interesting. The second day of that program is going to focus on Brown's work which is a lot of these lines we just talked about. He runs not only the baseline for that meridian, but he also runs the western and southern boundaries of Missouri, one of the northern boundaries of Missouri, the Osage Treaty Line, the Choctaw Treaty Line, and mixed in among those is he surveys the Santa Fe Trail from uh, Fort Osage 
Missouri, which is near Sibley, Missouri, out to Taos, New Mexico. And then later on, he ends up coming back to the eastern parts of Missouri and involved in several significant surveys of the towns there in the community, settling the school lands, um, audit uh, surveys from New Madrid certificates, which is an interesting tale in and of itself, as well as numerous Spanish land grants. Those whole systems dovetail together together to cause a lot of tidal uh, drama in the territory. And then the third event is uh, the following weekend is we're dedication, dedicating a monument to Joseph Brown and Bell Fountain Cemetery in St. Louis. Uh, that's been probably our signature event this year is trying to get him a monument. And a well-deserved one, it seems. Uh, and, and looking at the materials and the, and the dates when all the work took place and kind of understanding a little bit about the, the trials and tribulations of even doing this work, particularly in that time frame, he must not have spent an awful lot of time at home. Well, oddly enough, he held three other professions in the St. Louis area amongst this work. He was a oh, wow. sheriff and tax collector for a number of years. He also spent time as a state senator, and eventually ends his career as the county engineer responsible for getting several of the major roads in the area under construction, which is another fascinating aspect in and of itself. Yeah, that's that's amazing when we look back historically, and all of us believe we're overworked. We look back through history at the, and not only what was accomplished, but the times in which it was accomplished, and the 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 lack of the uh, all of the the things we have today to help us make things better. Not only from a travel perspective, but from a equipment perspective and and everything else. It just it almost blows your mind to to think about it, and that must have taken a lot of of uh, in, internal fortitude and ambition and all the other positives one can think about. Right. And in the meantime, he's running a lot of these lines through wilderness where there's a lot of hostile inhabitants in the general area, not real keen on the activities he's trying to perform. And all the while, he's trying to do that and make precise measurements. It's fairly impressive. Were you all able to find out much about um, his his team, so to speak? Before we came on the show, I, you and I were discussing a little bit this, this Ellicott book that's just come out. And and understanding the, the body of people necessary to even try to do this work back in those days. And I, was there much information about that? Well, as you can imagine, looking through records from the early part of the 19th century, that's fairly sporadic information. Yeah, uh, we we found some of his notes of where he's swearing in his uh, crew members. Uh, we found interaction with several people from that period, including William Clark and Edward Hempstead, some of the other prominent names in the history of Missouri there, and two or three people that are routinely appear in his notes, one named Archibald Campbell, who's a an attorney and a, a court clerk in St. Louis, and he is also the secretary for that Sibley expedition of the Santa Fe Trail, so... There are a few individuals that have some ties there, but it's really hard to piece together a detailed history from that period. Yeah, that's one of the things that we we wish we were able to do um, better, but uh, understanding that I'm sure at the time 
similar, I guess, to what we're the way we do things now. That I guess there wasn't too much thought about talking about who who else was along the path with you. I mean, if I think back, uh, even in my career, which certainly is long enough, <laughs> but not nearly this long, uh, I'd be hard pressed to remember all the people who helped me do the things I had to do during that period of time, and obviously didn't keep nearly as good a records as as these folks did. Yeah, some of the best communication there is through their letters when you can find those. For example, him and George Sibley has several communications and picking up nuggets through there is about the best that we can do in terms of putting these pieces back together. Right. Well, we're 15 seconds or so away from our first break, so I won't jump into it yet, but when we do come back, maybe we can start talking about his early career and start from there and then and follow along through the process of of uh, where he came to be uh, well known so let's go to break we'll be right back want to know if your shonstead locator is still under warranty go to shonstead.com and click on warranty finder in the lower left hand corner enter your six digit serial number and it will tell you everything you need to know out of warranty Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're continuing our discussion with Stan Emmerich regarding Joseph Brown's work and the uh, activities planned to celebrate that work. Um, one of the things that we were going to talk about was leading up to this and, and talking about his early career. Are you with me, Stan? Yes, I'm sorry. Uh, I thought I lost you there for a second. You scared me. (laughs) Uh, As we discussed earlier, some of these pieces are hard to put together. We focused on a couple of aspects trying to get a timeline for his uh, three decades of work in the territory, and we obviously come across a few gaps from time to time, which made us more curious to fill in you know, where he was during those periods. And kind of what we've been able to put together is we believe 
He uh, first lands in the territory as a member of the Virginia militia, uh, um, and we think he was end up stationed at Fort Bellefontaine, which is an old uh, fort on the Missouri River near the mouth its mouth with the Mississippi, and it pretty much controlled all of the Louisiana Territory at that time. Louisiana Territory being everything north of the state of Louisiana, and we think that's when he first probably meets William Clark. Because um, shortly thereafter, he is witnessed several of the Indian treaties that occur at the end of the War of 1812. There are several negotiations with the Indians of the day at a site called Portage de Sioux on the Mississippi River, and he is a witness to those treaties. Generally, what was going on was they were trying to make amends with the uh, tribes of that day who had actually sided with the British in the war. So they were trying to make amends and bring a little bit more um, order to that environment. And then from that period of time, shortly thereafter, he meets William Richter, who is the principal deputy surveyor for the territories of Missouri, Illinois, and Arkansas. From there, he enters a contract uh, to survey the baseline for the 5th Principal Meridian. That work begins in the fall of 1815. He and Prospect Robbins and several other surveyors uh, travel down the Mississippi River. He starts running the baseline from the confluence of the St. Francis River. He runs it west. At the same time, Robbins is running the meridian north from the mouth of the Arkansas River. Where that point intersects is the initial point for this entire network. Unfortunately, not having good uh, reconnaissance of the territory at the time, that point ends up landing in a swamp. Part of the reason for that is a few years before this, they had the New Madrid earthquake, which did considerable damage to the uh, environment, topography of that general area. In fact, there were stories at that point in time where that earthquake was so pronounced that it caused the Mississippi River to flow backwards. From that, they initially set this initial point and begin to lay out several townships immediately in that vicinity that are supposed to be part of these military bounty grants. And not knowing the terrain, obviously one of the instructions from Tiffin's uh, set was that they had to report on the conditions of the soil that they were passing through, the general environment. And in this particular case, they picked this area because it was between the two rivers, the St. Francis and Arkansas, figuring there was probably some pretty good uh, soil for cultivation there. Unfortunately, the land wasn't uh, suitable for that for most of the time, and a lot of these early grants were, uh, or patents given to the soldiers, was uh, for ground that nobody really wanted. So they quickly moved out of there and had tried to start running part of the line north of Meridian and tracing those townships. Um, after Brown surveys that baseline, he kind of breaks away from this group and returns up to St. Louis because he's going to be given another task in the following year to mark that Osage Treaty Line. So he sets out on that task and arrives at Fort Osage in the summer of 1816 and proceeds to prepare to run that line south from the Missouri River all the way to the Arkansas River. It's about uh, 200 miles in length. And the curious part of this is the year 1816 was the year without a summer. Apparently, there was a significant volcanic eruption in the spring of the prior year. And that year, 1815 and 16, that winter, 
was one of the coldest on records. So imagine what that must have been like, marking these lines, trying to maintain some degree of accuracy through a cold, wet swamp in a hostile environment, and trying to keep that in some kind of order, and obviously getting it done as quickly as possible. It's uh, quite a task for anyone to take on, I would think. Yes, looking back at pretty much anything our, our ancestors did in that time frame and even earlier is almost unbelievable. If you, if you just stop and think about it, when we we complain about the the little daily problems that we have all the time, yeah, um, that's correct. It it just it just uh, blows your mind really to to think about that. You mentioned the name Prospect Robbins earlier. Yeah. Um, somehow that rings a bell to me. I don't know if I was at a conference or a meeting somewhere, and I think it was in Missouri where. I heard that name. I don't know if somebody was portraying that character or if there was some. I don't know. Maybe you don't know about that. It just it just rang a bell to me when you said it. Yeah. He is uh, fairly well known in the period. Him and Brown are the two that do most most of that original work there. He eventually uh, moves after the run in that Meridian moves up to St. Charles, Missouri, and actually uh, he's a. Uh, judge. He becomes a territorial judge up in that area, but also continues to survey. Uh, Brown actually is the more reputable surveyor after the day. He's, he's given in charge of more of the important works, and Robbins kind of takes on a uh, secondary career up there, mostly as a municipal judge. And so the, the treaty line, the Osage treaty line, you noted that it was intended to be the western boundary of the state, and, and was that part of a treaty with with a tribe or, or another type of treaty? No, yes. It was a treaty with the Osage tribe uh, initiated by William Clark in 1808. Uh, the problem with that, it, uh, to be, back up just a little bit here, when the Louisiana Territory is purchased and becomes part of the United States, there are several thousand inhabitants in the territory that already have claims to land granted by the Spanish government. And as they uh, try to press their claims, as the Spanish sign the parcel back to the French, and then when the French sell the purchase to the United States, they make a claim to the effect that the uh, property and ownership of these individuals will somehow be confirmed through the new government and that they will be able to enjoy their, their property freely. Uh, that process doesn't go quite as well as everyone had hoped, and it takes decades to get that fully resolved. But part of this granting, bringing in the new settlers to the territory, is the federal government insisted that the the Indians' rights were extinguished to the land before they would allow settlers to come in. So this treaty was, in effect, executing that uh, extinct ex extermination. They were trying to... Uh, get the Osage, the greater Osage, to release their claim to the territory before they would allow settlers and inhabitants to move westward. This line was going to be that western boundary of the initial petition for statehood by Missouri. And uh, he takes a good, uh, it's, he does an amazing job as he's running this line because he starts out running in prairie and he ends up crossing three mountains and swamps and weed, reed uh, fields and before he reaches the Arkansas. 
And uh, all the while, too, he's got to watch out for hostile inhabitants. And in fact, every time there's a report of him going out on a survey, there's always a report coming back that that crew had been massacred by the inhabitant, Native Americans, and yet he always manages to return and say, no, that's not true, we actually survived. In and of itself, an amazing accomplishment. So on the map where we show the... 1816 line, and then what is the, I guess, the current or actual western boundary? What precipitated that change? Was it? Well, when they run that Osage line, they have two surveyors out there doing it. Uh, Brown's running the line south from Fort Osage, and on a meridian to the Arkansas. Another surveyor, John Sullivan, is going to run the northern portion of that line. It turns out that they got a treaty from the Osage Indians for lands on both sides of the Missouri where the Osage really didn't uh, possess to claim any of the land north of the river. So they extinguished or gave up their rights to areas that they weren't really occupying. But the state saw fit or the federal government saw fit to mark out that line too. The line that Sullivan runs starts at the mouth of the Kansas River and goes north for 100 miles. And then he's instructed to run it east on a parallel of latitude to the rapids of the River Des Moines, which uh, is a battle in and of itself. Brown fights later on. But that, that's the original northern line of Missouri, or the Osage Treaty Line. Mm-hmm. So when they move the line to the southern side, west, they're trying more or less to line up with that. And that's why they moved the line that Brown marks in 1823. It's about 20 miles west of where the treaty line was. Yeah, it looks, on the map at least, it looks pretty parallel. I'm sure it's not exactly, but it looks fairly parallel for most of the way, anyway. Right. Well, he was instructed to run on a meridian for both of those lines and and made a reasonable effort of it. When he ties back in on that southern line, he's not too far off from being parallel. Right. Yep. Another amazing feat, I might add. Yes, yes. When When you think about it. So I know in our next segment we're going to talk about the, the Santa Fe Trail line and, and those other things. I was I was thinking, this is a little off topic, but we got a minute and a half or so here, so I'll I'll throw it out there. I'm always intrigued by the by the naming of the states and where the you know what the the genesis of those names is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much research has been done on that. I'm sure each state has research on how that occurred. Um, you know, my home state of Virginia, it's pretty easy <laughs> where that one came from. But uh, when you look at the names of the states going going f- even uh, further west uh, from the colonies, it's it's of interest to me to figure out how those names came about. I don't know if you have an idea about that or not. but it's A little bit on the Mississippi and Missouri were names. I understand they were Algonquin terms for those two large rivers. Uh, I see. I okay. believe the Missouri River was the Big Canoe River. Missouri, Mississippi, Missouri. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow that translated down to the time. And I think a lot of that is kind of a mispronunciation probably from trying to understand the French or uh, Cajun influence on those names that they get abused. And as they move west, a lot of these names are directly related to tribes from the territory. Right. Well, that that all makes sense, and the whole dialect thing. I mean, you know, being from the 
mountains of Virginia and saying things differently than most other people. I can certainly understand that side of, of mispronunciation. Well, it's time for our break, so let's do that. We'll be right back. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We want to talk about, as I said, Brown's career sort of after this part of it, and and we want to get into that. But it might be worth mentioning during the break uh, that Stan and I were talking about filling in gaps of information and how difficult that is and and sometimes just not findable. and view, certainly you're much more of a researcher in this kind of thing than I am, but I, I can imagine the frustration of wanting to be able to find that and not having the, the ability to find it. That is a problem, but it's one, like you were saying earlier, surveyors are used to. Well, part of our job as a surveyor is to put together a picture or a puzzle without ever having all the pieces and trying to figure out what that picture really looks like. This is similar to that process. You go for so long, and then you finally realize there's gaps that I've got to overcome or fill in on my own. But in this particular case, you know, there's a good base. We've got a pretty good idea of, of this guy's history, even though we don't have all of the details. And from what we've seen, he's certainly a renowned individual. When you mentioned earlier that, that he was a lieutenant in the Virginia militia. Was he a native Virginian? Yes, he actually um, was born. He was born in Prince Edward County, 
okay. in uh, January of 1784, and his father, who was uh, Burwell Brown, um, had been there for a number of years. I'm not sure exactly what his origin was. Uh, he was educated near Charlotte Courthouse, and part of the difficulty we've had is figuring out where that education come from. Because oh, yeah. he clearly picks up his mathematical skills during his time in Virginia, and we were really trying to run down where that might have occurred. Because he he clearly is a knowledgeable individual. Perhaps must have attained attended a school there, although I'm not positive of that. But. As I mentioned to you uh, when we were talking earlier about our our state historical society, maybe maybe that's a good task to talk to them about. I don't know. Um, we have a there's a book they actually sell called Surveyors and Statesmen that mm-hmm. that that tracks some of the old history. Um, I'm not sure if it has any any on this particular uh, issue, but uh, you you all like you said, anytime you have an opportunity to sort of fill those gaps, it regardless of whether it's directly related to a particular survey or not, just on the history of the individual um, is is certainly of interest as well. Yes. In fact, we should probably reach out to those folks and see if they couldn't help narrow that down. Part of it's not knowing where to look for some of these records. You know, if we had somebody from the area that's familiar with the database, would probably ensue, uh, you know, enhance our ability to do a search. Yeah, I've made a note to myself to follow up on that and talk with those guys. Um, Great, and, and see if maybe we can uh, can get get somebody involved in looking for some of that information. Well, I know we wanted to talk about some of the other work that he did. One of the things that you mentioned was this surveying of the Santa Fe Trail. That one sort of intrigues me. It's a fascinating tale, um, and we kind of stumbled upon this during doing our research of his work in Missouri. We found that there was a commission established shortly after statehood where um, one of the first senators in the state, Thomas Hart Benton, convinced Congress that uh, we need, they needed a trade route to uh, Mexico to, you know, to, to transfer the goods back and forth, and they were going to use the Santa Fe Trail, which had been primitively established in a few years prior than that out to Santa Fe. But they really wanted to mark out that road and to acquire trees with the Indians uh, to allow the passage of the uh, traders and so forth. And so this commission was put together to do just that, to survey this road and to mark off the trail and to write sort of a traveler's guide description of where the trail ran and in the meantime try to map it out as best they could through the prairie, the territory that they virtually had no maps on. So. Um, George Sibley was put in, in charge of this expedition, and he has William Richter find a surveyor, and Joseph Brown is chosen among about 200 different applicants. In fact, there's some uh, bad feelings left behind for Brown being selected, but he was selected clearly because he was the most competent individual at the time. Apparently, uh, there's inscriptions from several individuals that he was far and away the most competent, honest, and individual that could take on the task. And so he's hired and sets together a party, and they head out from uh, Fort Osage near Sibley, Missouri, on this journey west. And along the way, they are periodically stopping to negotiate treaties with the tribes to uh, be allowed to pass through their lands. And so it's, it's 
an excursion through the wilderness where, again, we're trying to make some fairly precise measurements for mapping purposes and for um, descriptive purposes to allow people to follow behind. We're not marking this every mile like we would a township or a range line. But he's doing enough precise measurements periodically determining his latitude so that he can actually accurately plot, plot this when he's done. They make it as far as the Arkansas River, which is at that time the northern boundary of Mexico, and they are stalled at that location because they haven't been given permission yet to cross into Mexican territory. Apparently the negotiations at the federal level hadn't uh, got that task accomplished. So they make it as far as the Big Bend in the Arkansas River and are forced to quit for the year. This is in 1825. So the party decides to break in two, and Sibley and Brown and a few of the folks proceed on to Taos and winter there, and the rest of the party returns to Missouri. And then in the following year, in the spring, they're still having difficulty getting permission, so they start working their way back from Taos, making measurements as they go to pick up where they left off. Then eventually, the latter part of that following year, they finally get permission to uh, run that survey the west of the way to Santa Fe. And at this time, Brown's left the party. Sibley thinks he's learned enough about surveying at that point in time that he's going to carry on. When he's done, he sends all these notes back to Brown, and then Brown, over the next couple of years, compiles them into a fairly detailed map and description of the entire territory. The line turns out to be in excess of 750 miles, of which he's calculated positions, a coordinate system that's a little peculiar. He's not really working on latitude and longitude because he's not comfortable with his longitudes. Obviously, that's a function of precise measurement of time, and they weren't as comfortable with that as they did latitudes. If he's using his latitudes, he makes periodic uh, observations, uh, celestial observations determined, and then he uses his compass directions and distances to calculate his longitudes as he moves across this territory. And amazing, uh, as you can imagine, he did a fairly remarkable job, all in all. Components of it, there were a little few errors. But the portion of our presentation at our meeting is going to be done by Stephen Schmidt, who had a uh, research grant to try to plot Brown's survey on modern maps. And he spent a couple of years uh, putting this thing together and the tale that he's gone through of trying to reproduce Brown's notes and make them fit on modern maps is an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, a lot of it starts out well, southern parts of it don't go quite as well, but all in all, he becomes also a believer that Brown is a man of significant accomplishments. Yes, it's interesting you, you, you say that because as you were talking, I pulled out my, my little atlas here and I was looking at the map of Kansas and looking at the river and then the sketch that's on the the piece the map you sent me and I was I was trying to equate road locations with the trail which is fairly commonplace you know you 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 see that all the time right and uh, so I was just trying to map out which of the roads seem to be following uh, the trail itself and you can kind of see that down where the the bend of the Arkansas is, and then on down to the southern bend that turns back to the west. Um, looks like Route 56 kind of follows that for a ways. Right. And, and 
connected with that too, um, which I didn't include in the material I sent you. And another insert map we have in our program at the annual is Brown Survey. It's from 1820-829, and it's a large map. It's, it's fairly impressive. It's laid out like on a normal grid sheet of paper where he's got some, all the uh, significant features and points along this map, and he's, he's got a full-page chart of coordinates, which, oddly enough, the coordinates are in miles and chains, which is kind of a unique system in and of itself, all running westings and southings. Uh, all the way out there, and he does a detailed drive. It's a marvelous instrument to look at. We've got a website, or actually the Santa Fe Trail Organization has a website that has all of those maps and Brown's notes on there, and I think uh, if anybody's interested in seeing the detail level of this work, they could go to santafetrail.org and do the Sibley survey research on there and find a fascinating collection of information. Yeah, that, again, the kind of thing that surveyors would find intriguing. Uh, I, I, I do that all the time. When I'm, when I'm out traveling, I'm on a particular road, and I'm always thinking, okay, what was what was the event that caused somebody to put a road here? Right. And uh, it's, it's always fun to speculate, even though you don't really know all the things you need to know. And we've... Uh, we only got a couple minutes left in this segment. I know we want to talk about the the North Carolina, Missouri, and and uh, the New Madras certificates, and we'll we can start that now and then bleed it over into our last section too. One thing I kind of skipped over, if you don't mind, Kurt, was him running the Western and Southern line. There's a detailed account of that effort um, that's been made by a couple of individuals. One of them, Daryl Pratt, the Missouri State Land Surveyor, is going to yeah, present no our uh-huh. program. Yeah, and uh, that's a fascinating account in of itself. Brown's running this western line of Missouri in 1823, seven years after he runs the Osage line, and he makes several comments running through there about the change in the environment. There's far less game than there was in the 1816 survey. He runs into a hunting party of Osage and. He's not sure they've been informed why they're running this line in territory that should be there, so he gets a little nervous about that event. And The only time we found in his records where his dimensions tend to be longer than they normally should be was the day or two after he's trying to evade this hunting party before he gets <laughs> southwest corner. And then from there, the interesting part, too, he's running through prairie during most of this. He gets down to the south line, and now he's got to turn west and run through the Ozark Mountains. And that's a whole other hardship that he endures. The odd part is he's running all this time periodically trying to make corrections for latitude. And he's convinced himself when he reaches the end that he's too far offline and he's not confident in where where that line is or how accurate he is. And I hate to interrupt, Sam, but we're going to have to go to break. So let's leave our audience wondering what he did, and we'll cover that when we come back. So okay. let's, let's take our last break. Want to know if your Shonsted locator is still under warranty? Go to Shonsted.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Quick stakes. 
is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back for our last segment today with Stan Emmerich. We're talking about the works of of Joseph Brown. And and as we were going to break, you were talking um, about some of the issues he was having on the 1823 line. Yes. uh, As he approaches the St. Francis River, uh, there... There's no uh, resources available to feed the horses. The horses are tiring. The men are tiring. The equipment is kind of breaking down. And he reaches a point where he realizes he needs to break up the party and all their gear and send part of them back to St. Louis. And these guys put the necessary equipment on their backs and start humping it through the mountains. As he reaches the end point on the river, he's convinced that he might be too far offline. He's not confident in his work. So he makes in his returns to William Richter that he questions his abilities on this last reach and that they might consider rerunning it. Well, they eventually do that in 1842. Basil Gordon and a commission's developed once Arkansas achieved statehood to rerun this line. And so they commission surveyors to do that and they try to retrace the effort. And again, they're trying to stay on the parallel 3630 which happens to be a natural extension of the royal colonial boundary of 1665 between Virginia and Carolina and Kentucky and Tennessee as it moves westward. And so when the new surveyors come back in 1842, they determine that Brown is really only off by a few chains from that latitude. In fact, they proceed to make more measurements and they start running the line back to the west from that point and they eventually get to the southern corner, southwest corner of Missouri, and they end up moving it a couple of hundred feet, which, oddly enough, the state land survey program of Missouri comes back and retraces in the 90s, find out the line's actually between the two surveys and actually much closer to Brown's line than Gordon's line. So Brown was doing phenomenal work. And at the same time, too, we were going to get into the northern line of Missouri, which Sullivan runs, he has similar issues, except when he misses this line at the end, he's off by three and a half miles. 
when you consider the work of these two individuals, Brown was much more conscientious in his efforts than most surveyors, probably even ones with today's abilities. Yeah, that's that's certainly a really good possibility because just of the fortitude it takes to do the work, you you know the people are the kind of people who are going to really play pay play pay close attention to what they're trying to do. No question about that. Well, we've got a, um, probably another ten minutes or so, so I know we're probably not going to be able to cover all the material, but perhaps we can. I don't know if you want to talk more about his other careers or if you want to talk about some of these other works that he was involved uh, involved in. Uh, a couple of things you mentioned was the Honey War and the, the New Madrid Certificates. I don't know if you want to talk about those. Unfortunately, we probably don't have the line to cover that as well. But the interesting part of the northern line of Missouri is there was four different locations for it. And eventually it took a Supreme Court decision in 1849 to determine its final location. What that was was Sullivan runs his line in 1816 as the Osage Treaty Line. Again, he ran north from the mouth of the Kansas River for 100 miles and then tried to stay on a parallel attitude to the Des Moines River. Uh, the Constitution, as the state finally uh, comes into being, Missouri, that is, in 1820, sets the northern line to commence at the rapids of the River Des Moines and run west on a parallel attitude to the Missouri River where they've incorporated a little land west of that first Sullivan line. Brown sets out to mark that in 1837 and determines that mile, that line is about eight or nine miles north of Sullivan's line, and he proceeds to mark that all the way out. And then after that, another commission uh, comes along and uh, is trying to determine what that northern boundary should be based on the definition. The definition in the state was weak. It was supposed to be on a parallel latitude between that corner that Sullivan set and those rapids in the River Des Moines. Well, for folks that have ever seen that river, there's nothing close to even looking like rapids in there. It's a fairly still body of water for most of this area. So they take a lot of time trying to figure out where this is, and they come up with four different lines, and they chart them out, and there proceeds to be a debate. Well, in the meantime, Missouri's possessing the Browns line that he runs in 37, and that incurs that the sheriffs up in that territory are trying to collect taxes from residents north of Sullivan's line, south of Browns line. Now, the folks in Iowa don't take too kindly to that and send their militia down to quash that effort by the sheriff to collect the taxes. So the Missouri governor has to send a militia up there to make sure it's enforced, and they spend a lot of time arguing over which is the right line. What drove that is there was a tree that had a honey, large honey deposit in it, and they were debating which side of the line that was on, and that became known as the Honey War. They were fighting over oh, the location of the nine miles. And eventually, the Supreme Court decrees that Sullivan's original line is the boundary line. And in 1849, Brown is sent, he's get commissioned to go back and mark Sullivan's line as the state line. Unfortunately, he dies right before he can take on that task, and so that was left, left as the one unfinished piece of business that he was put in charge of that didn't get to be executed. So, it's an interesting tale. It's, it's kind of an anecdotal tale of two states not getting, getting along for kind of silly reasons, but yeah, makes yeah, for an remember, interesting story. 
talking to somebody in, I think it was Ohio, where they, they had a, a, something they called the pig war. Um, so those kind of things tend to happen. Um, I want to make sure you have some time to talk about the dedication ceremony. Yes. What has happened here is um, Bob Myers, the Missouri's first state land surveyor, discovered, quite by accident, actually, that Brown's remains appeared to be in a family plot of a uh, sister who married into a Walker family. And uh, based on his efforts, as we did quite a bit of research trying to run that down and come to the conclusion that we we're going to build him a monument, that it was seemed rather ironic to us that a man that was responsible for setting thousands of monuments didn't have one of his own. <laughs> yeah. We set out to correct that oversight, and uh, the State Society of the Missouri Society of Professional Surveyors, in cooperation with both their St. Louis chapter and the Friends of Bell Fountain Cemetery, set about to construct this monument. And we've gone through the process of raising some funds, and we've nearly achieved our goal, but still are trying to look for a little bit more help in that regard. We've built a, designed a fairly worthwhile monument to be uh, befitting a man of this character. And once that monument is dedicated, it's going to become part of the tour of the cemetery where uh, they have a collection of historical figures in there, and they regularly offer tours of those individuals. Brown will get the recognition he deserves along with individuals such as William Clark, Edward Hempstead, Thomas Hart Benton, uh, Edward Bates, all significant figures that affected the history of the state and uh, the westward expansion of the nation. So does the, the cemetery where you said they've erected monuments for certain people, That they have them there even though the people may not be buried there? Most of those are uh, actually graveside markers. In this particular case, we thought originally that we had Brown's location pinned down. But through the research, additional research, uh, some transfer records came to about that may have questioned that. He was originally buried in a church cemetery on a tract of land that he owned in northern St. Louis County. Uh, it was a Moline Church. He was an elder in that church, and he had dedicated some land for a cemetery in that location. It was originally interred there with several family members. That cemetery closed in 1874, and it appears that the family members had to be moved. At that point in time, we believe he and other family members were transferred to Bell Fountain. Well, as we start seeing some of these records, there's debate whether this is Brown or his nephew, Joseph C. Brown, Jr., uh, nephew 30 years, his junior, who dies at the exact same year. Part of the process here is he dies, both these men die in 1849 during what's a large cholera epidemic in the St. Louis metropolitan area. And unfortunately, the city and the state didn't start keeping death certificates or records until 1850. So we have a tough time trans uh, tracing the origin of both of these individuals as well as the transfer. So we're going on the premise that we may not actually have this site located, so the memorial is becoming a cenotaph, an unoccupied tomb. Uh -huh. We are reserving that should we find his remains, which we are still searching for, and we'd have them transferred to this location. But nevertheless, this is the spot we figure he gets the best recognition for his efforts. I was going to say it sound, certainly sounds like a fitting location. 
Definitely, because the cemetery routinely conducts surveys, I mean, I'm sorry, tours, and a lot of individuals will be able the opportunity to pass by and see him, and, and our monument is such that we think it will draw their attention and highlight some of his significant life's work. We talk about a person that shaped the state of Missouri. This is the guy. He marked the lines. And for the for the audience again, the dates. The the program itself will be October 9th and 10th at our annual conference in Tantara. That's at the Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri. The dedication ceremony is the following Saturday, October 17th, in Bell Fountain Cemetery in St. Louis. And you said in in the first of those two, you're going to do some workshops, right? Yes, the workshops are broken into two days. The first day, again, is uh, recognizing the expansion of the fifth principal meridian network, a tract that covers more than 225 million acres of land through six states. The second day is focused primarily on Brown's work, marking these state boundaries and these um, the Santa Fe Trail, and which fortunately we didn't have time to discuss. He spends a lot of time in eastern Missouri trying to work out the details of the boundary disputes that occur from the fraudulent New Madrid certificates, the audit of school lands which are given to the state to fund the school system, a uh, set of congressional acts for the adjudicating of the claims of the original inhabitants that have Spanish land grants. All of that consumes nearly uh, half a century of title disputes that are only resolved through the accurate surveys, and Browns is responsible for doing many of those surveys. Yeah, I hate that we're running out of time. There's still a lot of the story to tell, but I want to thank you for being with me and highlighting what you guys are doing. I will, in fact, talk to the, the Virginia Surveyors Foundation folks and have them get back in touch with you, or I will one or the other, to see if there's any way to help identify some of uh, his early information. So maybe we can help fill in some of the blanks for the story. But, again, I... Thanks so much for being here today. It's, it's been a great conversation and really enjoyed uh, hearing the story. You're welcome, Kurt, but it's been my pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity to share our uh, efforts with your audience. Thanks so much. Take care and hope to see you sometime soon. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.